Does the cross horrify you? If it doesn't, then perhaps it's because you haven't considered precisely what it is. Or perhaps it's because you've become so used to seeing crosses on Christian churches, on people's bling around the place, that it's become boringly familiar, smoothed, gilded, cleansed, made decent. But think about this. At the heart of Christianity is a spectacle, a spectacle so distasteful that in ordinary circumstances you would not want it displayed in public. In ordinary circumstances you would, you would want it kept till very late night for television viewing. If it was on YouTube you might complain about the indecency and the violence of this image being publicly available. It is deeply shocking. You get some of this, uh, you, you get that impression um, or, or that comes across you, the insight came to me especially as I was reading to my children. You're reading a Bible story and, and usually, you know, the Bible story works, they want the Bible story, it's all good. Uh, some lovely pictures in the Bible. Then you turn the page and there's a picture of a man dead. And you have to say to the kids, you might only be three or five, they're, they're my children, very young. This is Jesus dying on the cross. And ordinarily, you might have noticed, children's stories don't deal with that kind of thing. They don't deal with that. And yet here, presenting to you, you almost want to protect children from it, but here, the shocking reality at the heart of Christianity, the death of Jesus on a cross. Now, to give him credit, the uber-atheist Richard Dawkins can see exactly how horrifying this image at the center of Christianity is. I think, I think he really has got this. Recently, he said on the ABC, if you believe in the New Testament then you believe that God, the all-powerful creator of the universe, couldn't think of a better way to forgive humanity's sins than to have himself put on earth, tortured and executed in atonement for the sins of humanity. What kind of horrible, depraved notion is that? Richard Dawkins with his usual subtlety and uh, forbearance and etc. Uh, tolerance of the rest. Uh, but he's clear-sighted, isn't he? He says, look, what kind of a faith is this that at the center of it has this gross spectacle of a man dying on a cross, a man being tortured? And what kind of faith is it which says that God, this is what God wanted, that somehow God himself offered himself and was tortured for the sins of people, uh, tortured and executed and killed. And, and, and this now is the image which we carry around and which we have displayed and which we, which we offer our worship to. Now, I want to help you see today that Richard Dawkins is actually onto something. And I kind of hope that you weren't expecting to hear the speaker at the EU public meeting say exactly that. But I think Richard Dawkins has really got something right. Unlike most of us, Dawkins hasn't been swayed by all the prettifying of the cross and the coating of chocolate that's been spread over the Easter story. He's able to see past that and to see what it, in one sense what it really is. He's seen that the story of the cross is frankly horrifying and extreme, isn't it? Horrifying and extreme. But I want to show you also that the cross of Jesus is not just some piece of divine sadism or gross act of torture by a savage God. Rather, the cross is an extreme problem, extreme solution, I should say, to an extreme problem. It is extreme because the problem that it is addressing is also extreme. 
a problem that you and I share. And so I want to invite you to look over the shoulder of the Gospel writer, Mark, as he takes us into the Garden of Gethsemane, that scene the night before Jesus died. And uh, in particular, I want to take you to uh, Mark chapter... uh, I've just put it down here and lost my place. Mark chapter 14. And verses 32 through to 52. If you've got a Bible there, it would help. uh, But I really just want to focus in on a couple of verses that come here. So Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through to 42. I beg your pardon. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I particularly want to focus on what Jesus prayed. He prayed, Everything's possible for you, but not my will but yours. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like much the prospect of pain. Um, I even hate that moment when, you know, the uh, cut on your leg has become a little gangrenous and uh, you know the band-aid's going to have to come off and you're really going to have to do something and you know that all the hairs on your legs are going to come out and uh, the scab's going to come off and all the rest, but you've got to sit down and get that that band-aid off. I, I don't even like the prospect of that. I think that's why doctors and dentists say to you uh, when, when you're going for some procedure, look, you might experience some discomfort. What they mean is it's going to really hurt. Have you ever had that? I, I uh, had my wisdom teeth out um, not long after I left uni. I had, my, uh, had a wisdom tooth problem. Went to the dentist, you might experience some discomfort, he said. What that really meant was that I was going to see and hear and feel my tooth being cracked in two by a man who had to put his knee on my chest to get some leverage. I don't think I would have signed up for it if... So don't go there. Um, any dentistry students here? Yes. Not admitting to it. Um, I, I don't think I would have signed up for it. In fact, I've actually not gone back and had the other side done. It may surprise you to learn. The prospect of suffering seems awkward and uncomfortable for Jesus too. It seems to really unsettle him. Now, in the, the, the Last Supper... Uh, With his disciples, he seems to be in control of events, or at least to know them ahead of time. He marshals things. He gets things ready for everybody. He predicts his own betrayal by Judas and and the denial that, you know, Peter's going to deny him. And Peter says, not me, not me. But then Jesus says it will happen, and sure enough, it happens. Ever since Jesus was declared by Peter to be the Messiah uh, at uh, Caesarea Philippi, a few chapters back from this story, he's been speaking about the necessity for him to be betrayed and to suffer and to die in such a way that really alert, clearly alerted and alarmed his disciples. He was clearly convinced 
that his mission as the Messiah of Israel was to give his life as a ransom for many, to die, to go to Jerusalem and to be crucified. And so instead of hiding in the regions away from the authorities or putting on a disguise or some such, he heads to Jerusalem and he heads to the temple right into the thick of it, which would seem to be inviting trouble, don't you think? Clearing the temple too. He went and cleared the temple. That's clearly a provocation to the authorities. Unsurprisingly led them to plot to kill him. He seems committed to his destiny, doesn't he? Single-minded in his grasping of the cup of the divine wrath. Was he suicidal? Did he have a death wish? Did he have some kind of psychological flaw which meant that he had to pursue his own destruction? Did he like pain? Was he a masochist? Was he just unafraid of suffering and death? Did knowing after three days he would rise, alleviate the, you know, this is just a weekend's work, I'll just go, sure it'll hurt Friday, but no pain, no gain, fine again on Sunday. Is that kind of his attitude here? Did knowing he was the son of God make his death easier? Was he philosophical about it, a bit like Brian on the cross in the last uh, last temptation of, uh, sorry, Life of Brian who sings, of course, what does he sing? Always look, yes, that. Uh, he sings, always, there's always someone who whistles. Uh, always look at the bright side of life. Is that, what, is that where Jesus is? Is he sort of stoical about it all? Well, as we seen in this, see in this scene, the answer is not actually any of these. We read this. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Yeah, I'll just keep going, but it's going to be difficult to see my notes. Um, deeply distressed and troubled. My soul, my soul, he says, is overwhelmed to the point of death. These words point to an extreme distress, a fear and an agony. In fact, Luke in his gospel uses the word agony and he talks about Jesus' sweat. You might remember it. His sweat being like great beads of blood falling on the ground. So, so distressed and upset was Jesus here. Matthew speaks of a sorrowful grief, even a dismay. And even John, whose betrayal of Jesus sometimes makes him look a little bit tougher than the others, has Jesus declaring that his soul is troubled. Jesus at this moment was terrified and horrified at the prospect of what he was about to undergo. The words used here, they self-consciously pick up the kind of words we see in the Psalms in the Old Testament. Um, Like these words from Psalm 55, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death assail me. Fear and trembling here beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter far from the tempest and the storm. I'm horrified. I'm in anguish. I'm terrified. In his suffering, Jesus is embodying the torment and distress of Israel as her Messiah. It's not a very heroic picture, is it? We might have expected Jesus to have manned up a little bit more, to have been a little bit tougher, to have shown a little bit more chin in the face of this. You know, we think of uh, other great heroes of, uh, of the past. Uh, Socrates, condemned to death for corrupting the youth of Athens, gladly drinks the hemlock and quite cheerfully goes to his death without kind of, you know, has to comfort his, outside, his, his friends and his disciples. Or even Australia's great philosopher, Ned Kelly, whose um, last words were, does anyone know his last words? 
Such is life. You know, there he is in defiance of the authorities. This is what happens. Perhaps a, a little bit of bitterness in his tone, such as life, but goes to the hangman's noose, unafraid and tough, with a glint in his eye. But not Jesus. There's no stirring battle cry. There's no waving of swords. There's no heroism. And he raises the question, doesn't he, of another possibility. Is there some alternative, some other way that God's purpose might be carried out? Is there some other plan that you can... Have you got some plan B, God? Is there some other way we can do this? Is this absolutely necessary? In the wilderness, when he was tempted, Jesus faced down Satan himself by dipping into God's word and resting on God. There was no hint of hesitation on his part there. And likewise, when Peter rebuked him for wanting to go to the cross, for saying that he must go to, be, to suffer and be betrayed and to be crucified, again, Jesus tells him to go away. That's a satanic option to pretend that I can be the Messiah, I can forgive sins without going to the cross. However, here in the first garden, as there, in the second garden, as there was a test for Adam in the first garden, there was a test for Jesus in this second garden. I don't think the setting is accidental, these two gardens. The real possibility of escape must have fallen to Jesus here. The real possibility that he could choose some other path, that he could go some other easier way. Jesus does not reassure himself at this moment by remembering something about God, some truth. What he does is he prays to God that the hour might pass, that he wouldn't have to endure it. In the midst of his overwhelming emotions, his soul troubled to the point of death, he speaks with God and says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Everything is possible for you. Everything? Is it even possible for God to cleanse the sins of the world without his son bearing the divine wrath? Is the exaltation of the Messiah, the lifting up of Jesus, possible without him being humiliated? After all, is God the Father beholden to some eternal set of principles that he must obey? Has he got himself tangled in a promise that he has to keep? Has he somehow been duped into making some oath that he now has to keep, that he has to go through with this terrible decision right now? In one sense, Jesus' question is the same as Richard Dawkins' question, isn't it? Is this the best God can do? To have his son killed? To go through this torture and sorrow? Jesus says, Father, if you're willing, surely, surely God the Father could have arranged things differently. Isn't there another way? Couldn't the sins of the world be swept under the rug? Or lost behind the couch? Or not to trivialize it, just, just forgotten? Couldn't he make it go all the way without this terrible scene, without this terrible suffering? The answer for now is no answer at all. There's no voice that comes from the sky and gives Jesus the answer here. Jesus, the one so intimate of God, the Son of God who prays to him, Father, the one with whom God was pleased, so full of the knowledge of God's will, he now experiences what? The silence of God which is a hint as to why Jesus is in such overwhelming distress. The cup, the cup he is about to take is the cup of God's wrath against sin. Psalm 75 reads this. It says, In the hands of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to the very dregs. 
And in Jeremiah 25, we read these words, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. You see in the Old Testament, the word, the idea of the cup is a, is a symbol of God's wrath. You drink the cup, it means that you are experiencing, you're taking on yourself the whole of God's wrath, the whole of God's anger against evil, against human disobedience. What Jesus is about to experience then, taking the cup, a cup, is not merely the physical pain of crucifixion. He's about to undergo God-forsakenness, the estrangement from his Father that finds expression finally in those words from the cross. You might remember them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no point at this, there's no, there's no dove from heaven at this point. Only the horrible prospect of a cup of God's wrath. See, there can be no other way. Not because God has been trapped into a contract that he can't get out of, you'll be glad to hear. Or because God is subject to some eternal law that binds him. Or because he's a sadist or some kind of pathologically mixed up deity that we have to deal with. Fascinated by violence and kind of really liking to see a little bit of blood. There can be no other way. Because God must always be true to himself. God must be true to his own character. He won't do that which is contrary to who he is. And who is he? He's not a split personality, one day merciful, the other day loving, and the, the, the next day uh, uh, angry and mad, the one day kind of nice and kind, the next day, and you've got to hope which day you get him on is the right day. No, God is gracious and compassionate, but also righteous and just. He is merciful and kind, and yet human sin is an affront to him. God is loving and so not indifferent to the behavior of human beings that he could overlook it. God is loving and so they're not slow in finding a way in which to reconcile human beings to himself. All things are possible for God the Father, yes, but not to be other than who he is. And we find on the cross of Jesus that horrible scene, great beauty. We find there God God's wrath and God's mercy meeting the perfect expression of who he is. And so three things for us, I think. Firstly, we need to see that Jesus is really, really human. That he experiences, he experiences fully the life we live under the threat of suffering and death. The life we experience. He faces the temptation we face. He goes the, undergoes the trials we undergo. Jesus of Nazareth was not superhuman. He's not a man made of steel or Teflon. He was made of flesh and blood, such as you and I have. I think sometimes for the Jesus of popular piety, the incarnation was all too easy. It was all too kind of a glib, a kind of easy matter. But the Jesus of the Gospels knows real fear and experiences real sorrow in his very soul, the horror and suffering and grief of this moment. The cross is not some business transacted within the Godhead as if the kind of the Father and the Son sort of worked out something on paper and then kind of showed us what it was on the cross. No, what we have here is a human being. The cup of God's wrath was drunk by one of us. He's not a fake. And secondly, he knows the horror of what's about to happen. He knows the significance of it. He's in such distress, we must conclude, because he knows what he faces is not merely the death of a human flesh, which would be bad enough. He's about to bear in his body the sins of the world. 
He's hours from his rejection, not just by his disciples, not just by the ruler of his own, rulers of his own country and the rulers of the world, but from bearing the wrath of the Father, the, the anger of his Father against all that is evil. He's staring into the abyss, which helps us to see that this is really, really serious. This is a really serious matter. And what keeps us from God is a really serious matter. It's a really dark and deep matter. That Jesus would go to such lengths that Jesus would accept God's will to this degree must mean that what keeps us from God is extremely severe. This is personal. The size and horror of the solution mirrors the size of our problem. Because of my sin, I'm in far graver danger than I thought I was. And we see also that Jesus was tested, really tested, to deny his Father. In this garden, we see the agony of Jesus, who, though he knows what the Father has planned must happen, begs for an alternative path, a way out. He's not heroic in the face of his execution. We don't celebrate him because he's some great hero, because he exhibits great virtues in the face of suffering. Like any of us, he's frightened. And he's considered the real option before him. And he has a real choice to take it. He's not a victim of the grinding wheels of fate or an innocent bystander or a kind of like an insect tortured just for the sake of it. Jesus goes to the cross freely and willingly, obediently, because he knew what the cross would do for us. He knew what forgiveness would mean for us. He knew what it would achieve. He knew that all the horror he would face would make it possible for us to be forgiven and to live at peace with the one who made us. Because of this, we can say with one of the other New Testament writers that we don't have a high priest, a mediator with God who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And so we can approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The one who speaks to God for us knew the paradox and complexity of human life. He knew what it was like to live our life. He really knew it, and yet he overcame, he overcame, so that we may receive mercy and find grace. And that's, what I, that's the message I bring today, if that's something that you would like to receive, mercy and grace, to know confidence with God. Then now will you pray with me? Pray that this horrible event may be for you. That what Jesus did, he, the extreme lengths that he went to, might be something you know. So will you pray with me? Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to recognize in the cross the severity, the severity of our problem with you, the depths of that which separates us, that you would go to such extreme lengths to overcome the bridge, the, the barrier. We pray also now that uh, we would recognize that, that uh, we would also know your love for us in that. And that in trusting, accepting that love, we would know you. And in Jesus' name it is that we pray. Amen. Now if that's something that you...